You're listening to The Sounding Line from the Gulf of Maine Research Institute. I'm Dave Reedmiller, Director of the Climate Center here at GMRI. Thanks for joining us. Climate change poses an existential threat to coastal communities as we know them. GMRI's Climate Center works to ensure coastal communities continue to thrive in a warmer world. We work with public and private sector partners to deliver world-class climate science to help them address climate-related risks and capitalize on new opportunities that may emerge. Our focus on providing customized solutions ensures our work has a lasting impact. The Maine Climate Council was established in law back in 2019 to bring diverse perspectives from every aspect of Maine life into a process that would create a roadmap for ambitious climate action across the state. Maine Won't Wait, the state's four-year climate action plan, was released by the council in December of 2020, charting a path for all Mainers to build adaptation to climate change and reduce the greenhouse gas emissions that drive it. In today's conversation, we're going to hear from two Mainers about their work on the state's climate council. Our guests are Kate Dempsey, state director of the Nature Conservancy in Maine, and Dan Kleben, co-founder and owner of Maine Beer Company. They told us about their roles on the Climate Council. Well, let's see, let, let me start with some of the basics. Um, Dan and I are each appointed by the governor, by Governor Mills. We are on, Dan, correct me, I believe it's a th- three-year term. And, um, you know, each of us were put in place in our position um, to represent a particular perspective or bring some particular knowledge to the conversation, much like Dan was articulating. Um, And then there are also working groups um, that really dug in deeply to specific areas, say transportation, community resilience, working lands, and so energy efficiency in buildings. So Dan and I both played different roles. but at the Nature Conservancy, I, I was the one serving, I am the one serving on the council and then a number of the team are on some of the working groups, which has been really wonderful. Yeah, I, and I think as, as Kate alluded to, I think one of, one of the things that I initially, you know, made me a, a bit of a skeptic about the work we were embarking on, but has, what has actually proven to be an asset uh, due in large part to, you know, Director Pingree and her staff is, the uh, written in the statute was a litany of members that were required to participate uh, on this climate council. And the, the specific number, I, I forget, but it was 30 plus or 40 some odd members that were required by statute to be on this council. And so when I saw that, I'm like representing a different, I mean, any, any and all industry, uh, NGO, uh, legislative uh, interest you can imagine, uh, which as you can, as any of us who have participated in large group, uh, committees can um, can appreciate the bigger they are, the more cumbersome they are, and the more apt they are to kind of crumble under their own weight. But uh, it has actually proven to be quite quite a uh, I think a strength in that we were able to vet differences in the committee work, in the subcommittee work, and really come to a, a consensus so that the end product really has buy-in from a divergent set of interests in the state. So it wasn't a, a the report that the or the plan that we. Um, submitted really has been kind of fully, not fully baked, but, you know, has really kind of gone through the ringer already. Uh, So it leaves it less, I think, vulnerable to, you know, political or or private interest um, attack. 
So I, I, I think that that is something that, like I said, I was, I was a bit skeptical to begin with, um, but has actually proven to be an asset. Uh, but there's no doubt been a ton of hard work done by not only the, the, the members of the council, but all the staff that has really worked to, to wrangle us as cats. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm struck by the fact of the, the timeline over which all this occurred, right? That I believe the, the legislation was signed maybe in December of 2019. And, you know, the, the council presumably, you know, was, was, was set up soon thereafter. And of course, almost simultaneous to that, you know, the, the COVID-19 pandemic, you know, gripped the entire country and um, clearly affected the way you all operated and, and, and how you were able to conduct the work. And I'm, I'm curious if you can speak to sort of some of the challenges uh, that emerged as a result of that, and also some of maybe the, the new ways of working together that, that you think may have uh, um, come together as a result. All right, I'll start, Dan. Um, you know, when I reflect back, it's you're right, Dave. Dan and I, and probably, I don't know, 250 people, I don't, were, were sandwiched into a room in Hollowell. And the governor was there and some other public officials. And it was, you know, a, it was like a rally. It was, it was super inspiring. Um, and I believe that was in late January, early February. And um, obviously we all know what the last year and a half, two years have been like. Um, and so COVID hit, we all went to our offices at home and um, began learning this new world. Um, I think what remained Two things I just want to point out that are really critical. Building on what Dan talked about reaching consensus, we collectively all put a real emphasis that on the stakeholder process and outreach needed to go forward in some way. We had to learn how to do that, but to Dan's point, if we were going to get to the end of the year and be successful, we had to reach out and hear from a huge number of people. So. We can talk about how, how the Climate Council did that. Yeah, and the other thing, I mean, no one needs to tell anyone how the, the evil and the good of Zoom, um, but what I think, uh, I mean, the great outcome I think we've all learned is we don't need to drive or fly to every single meeting. And if we did our little part as the council not contributing to carbon emissions through driving, from all over the state, maybe that was a good outcome. You know, Zoom is hampering no matter what we do in terms of building relationships, getting to know people, and that's really how great collaboration works. Yeah, the only thing I would add is that, you know, obviously after, you know, early March of 2020, when things kind of came to a, a grinding halt, I think it would have been easy for the, the council and, and staff to really lose focus and say, look, we've got other priorities. And would have, I think, been right in, in thinking that and perhaps going down that path, but um, we didn't. Um, we said that we, these two things uh, with dealing with, you know, a, a, the pandemic and uh, addressing uh, the existential threat of, of climate change, we can, we can do the work uh, in tandem. In fact, we have, we realize you have to do the work. It, it's kind of foolish to, you know, address one existential threat and ignore you know, we're, we just have to, you know, to say, you know, we're, we're going to we're going to do double duty here. And, um, you know, I, I give all the, the, the council members and, and staff an incredible amount of, of credit for persevering. It would have been easy to say, let's put this on the back burner and we'll get to it when we can get to it. But that that did not happen. 
and there were a lot of members, especially in the committee. I mean, the committee work will, will go un, unrecognized because it, it was it was not done, you know, a lot of it was done kind of not in the dark, but certainly was more behind the scenes. It, but there were a tremendous number of folks who put in countless hours uh, putting together, I mean, uh, especially, you know, folks on, on, the, um, on the science and technical committee um, who, whose work really guided the rest of the committee's work. And I, I want to say thanks to them because they did a whole heck of a lot more work probably than I did. Because uh, I'm, I'm not the technical or scientific expert, uh, but the work that they come up came up with remotely and on time was, I think, really, really incredible and testament to their dedication. Yeah, no, that, okay, that those are those are great points, and 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 you both kind of hit on sort of the importance of of hearing from a variety of people throughout the process, right? Different perspectives, and I'm curious if either from your fellow council members or in the, the, the number of uh, community engagement, you know, listening sessions and workshops you all held, if you were struck by anything in particular or thought about climate change in a way that you hadn't thought about it before or, you know, how it's impacting communities or, or what different response options there may be, did, did anything strike either of you as kind of a new way of thinking about it? What struck me was really a a level of of consensus and a level of and I think a, a dearth of opposition, which you know is obviously very inspiring. But I think if we would have had this same conversation ten years ago, this plan would have come out, and I think I think you would have heard voices from all different corners of our community, uh, loud voices in opposition. But I. You know, that's not to say that opposition does not exist. Of course it does. But I think there, there is an increased, I think, just awareness and um, acceptance of reality and facts, which is very, very encouraging. But to be you know, perfectly frank, a lot of the public communication and selling of this plan has yet to happen. Um, because of our, in large part because of, of, of COVID and the, the you know, importance of, um, you know, getting that, you know, getting COVID dealt with and hopefully getting, you know, people's lives that that foundation, you know, set again before we go out into the community. But um, I've been actually pretty encouraged by the, 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 the lack of really vocal and boisterous opposition, frankly. Yeah, the other thing, I mean, it's interesting because um, here we are, we're talking about this, the grounding of science, which let's just establish that, that the facts are what matter. And um, Dan, you've said something a couple times and not to call you on the table, but it's really for me really um, telling of one of the climate community's challenges is we have so technicalized the solutions um, that people feel like they're pretty distant from being able to act. And, you know, we need companies to act like Dan's and like much bigger, you know, as you said, Dave, much bigger ones. Um, we need governments to act around the planet. So I think it's incumbent on all of us now to understand that there's technical experts who will help guide us. And where the passion comes from is understanding how it's going to impact your own community. And so... You know, we spend a lot of time getting people to talk um, about how they're seeing climate change in their daily lives, because as soon as you, 
again, as soon as you can make something personal, the conflicts that often do come up in those conversations at your Thanksgiving dinner table, you know, you're talking about the 4th of July fair uh, parade and whether you wore shorts when you were a kid or whether you wore a sweater, you know, and now everyone wears shorts, right? So it's like untechnicalizing it. I don't know if that's a term, is something I think Dan and I are both really passionate about. And then the other thing, I just want to give a shout out to the huge number of young people who paid a lot of attention to this process. Um, some of them served on various working groups or on the council, uh, but they organized and really had a tremendous influence on some of the outcomes of the Maine Won't Wait you know, proposal and plan. And um, yeah. People like the three of us probably need to um, make sure that their voices are incorporated even more every day. Yeah, I, I, amen to that. They bring a passion to this work, I think, that is very, very inspiring and a level of public engagement that you know, I don't think we've seen in, in several generations. So I, I, I've been really inspired to see the, the amount of youth engagement in this work. And to, to dovetail into what Kate was saying about, I think, the the communication aspect of of not just this particular plan, but you know any the, the universal plan to um, combat climate change. I think that for too long, you know, uh, the, the 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 language of climate change and how we solve things, um, often communicated through climate scientists, is is a is a future of doom and gloom and in personal sacrifice that is if we're if we're going to save the world we have to give stuff up that's not a very motivating thing for people they don't want to hear that and that's not going to inspire them to action and i think we've seen over the last several decades it it hasn't um and so i hope that you know we i think we kind of flip the script a bit and say and offer a, a level of optimism that by embracing the, the, the ideas laid out in the climate action plan at the, the various state levels and the national and hopefully global level, uh, the future can be pretty awesome. You know, a, a future filled with electric vehicles and, and radiant heat in homes and, uh, you know, a, a, an electrified future can mean healthier, uh, healthier families, healthier communities, just a, a, a just a better lifestyle for folks. And yeah. we don't have to necessarily give everything up. Uh, and I think, and this is no offense to the climate scientists, but they don't speak that language. They speak <laughs> yeah. the language of the data. And if we don't reach a certain goal by a certain time, we're all dead. You know, and that, that which is true, but it, as a, I think a pure communications and buy-in messaging point, it's not, it, it just, it, it frightens people when people get, it's, it's too depressing. That was Kate Dempsey, State Director of the Nature Conservancy in Maine, and Dan Kleben, co-founder and owner of Maine Beer Company, talking about their work on the Maine Climate Council. I'm Dave Reedmiller, Director of the Climate Center here at GMRI. The Sounding Line is a production of the Gulf of Maine Research Institute, and you can find more episodes and read more about our work at gmri.org. Thanks for listening. Thank you.